This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, a good Tuesday to you. It is uh, September 20th already. Jesperson here with Hicks. We've got a great show in store. And uh, just a few seconds, uh, a few moments from now, we'll talk to David Bolton from Robert Half. Have you heard of Robert Half? They're the uh, world's largest talent recruitment, talent solutions firm, they call themselves. It's International Week of Happiness at Work. And there are some interesting talking points here, including where the labor market's at right now. It's really tight. And a lot of people, of course, as well, coming out of COVID are talking about burnout. A lot of people are exploring new career avenues, reevaluating their relationships with their employers. And so I think that David's going to have some great insights for us. They did a recent LinkedIn poll, uh, about 500 Canadian professionals. Uh, these professionals were asked, like, what is what about your job brings you joy? Uh, how you know, how do you prioritize flexible work options or receiving recognition, those types of things? A lot of more people want to work from home more permanently. A lot of things have changed. So we thought this was a great time to check in. That's coming up in just a few moments. And then in about 25 minutes from now, we'll continue our conversations with the contenders for the leadership of the United Conservative Party. This is going to be the person who's Alberta's next premier. It's a big deal. And Travis Taves, Alberta's former finance minister, of course, he resigned to run for the leadership. He was finance minister, uh, the one that was able to essentially uh, present a budget that was a confident budget, and it's provided a pretty big surplus. Now, there have been some factors at play, like uh, resource revenues have, have uh, you know gone a long way in bumping Alberta's surplus up to 13 plus billion dollars this year. Of course, I've got a ton of questions for Travis Taves, and I'm sure that you do as well. So one of the benefits of catching this show live, whether you're streaming our audio live on the Mixler audio app, when we go every morning at, at 8.30 Mountain Time, 10.30 Eastern, or maybe you're watching us on YouTube, you can throw your comments into the live chat, uh, your questions into the live chat for our consideration. We're going to get to as many of those as we can. We'll have about 20 minutes or so with Mr. Taves, and I look forward to that conversation. Plus, the Leading Edge every Tuesday here on Real Talk, presented by our friends at Leading Edge Physiotherapy. And we're going to get into medical tech, uh, some of the innovation that's helping people that have, in particular, spinal cord injuries live as close to a uh, life uh, that looked like what it was before their accident, if indeed it was an accident, as an example. You have people that have been in you know horrific car crashes, uh, as one example, that are working to first walk again and then maybe ultimately swim, you know, swing golf clubs or go swimming or, or do something that 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 might bring them the joy that they experienced before their life was altered in a major way. These are the stories we love to focus on innovation and technology and, of course, community service. It's it's why we circle the leading edge on our calendars every single Tuesday morning. It seems like everybody in Canada, if you weren't talking about the Queen's funeral yesterday, you were talking about the prime minister leaning on a piano in a hotel bar singing a couple <laughs> days before the Queen's funeral. John, for people that aren't familiar with the story, 
For the 11 audience members that are not familiar with this story, why don't we roll this video? It's a quick one. It's a snippet. Nobody seems to know who recorded it or who filmed it, but this is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in London Saturday evening. Keep in mind, the funeral was Monday, so this is a couple nights before the funeral at a, at a hotel called the Corinthia. That's where the uh, Canadian delegation was staying, and uh, the Prime Minister doing his best rendition of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, accompanied by Order of Canada recipient Quebec pianist Gregory Charles. Here's a snippet. Okay, so there he is. Now, it's been reported around the world. The BBC, as you can see, you know, Britain's definitive source with maybe it's the Telegraph. Maybe there's there's other. But, you know, the BBC, it's the freaking BBC. The headline reading Justin Trudeau's team defends singing Bohemian Rhapsody before Queen's funeral. They defend him singing Bohemian Rhapsody. What, what about on on CTV News, a Canadian outlet, CTV's Instagram, the comment Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is not a poor boy from a poor family. But that didn't stop him from trying to sing. They say trying to sing Queen's banger of a song, Bohemian Rhapsody, in the London Hotel Saturday ahead of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. John, do you have a strong opinion on whether or not it was inappropriate or okay for the Prime Minister to sing a couple of days before the funeral? I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion on it. Does it bother you at all? No. It doesn't bother me at all. Not one bit. No. I've been to funerals or wakes or celebrations celebrations of of life life. that have been full-blown parties far more excited and uh yeah rejoicing now i know people are going to say yeah people are going to say well you know don't compare your buddy's funeral or don't compare you know your 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 grandfather or your grandmother's funeral uh to the funeral of you know the head of state you know the queen the queen of canada um you know the monarch that reigned for a record-setting 70 years don't try to compare your uncle's wake to that of the queen and and you know you are hardly the prime minister of canada representing a country of millions and these points are fair and he's certainly earned consternation from some some pretty prominent voices right in canada and beyond uh, you know i think of andrew coin who was who was just on this show just a short time ago right love andrew coin globe and mail columnist you see him on power and politics uh, he wrote on his twitter embarrassing doesn't even begin to cover it he says he's the prime minister in a public place on the eve of the queen's funeral i mean technically not technically the eve of the eve but whatever on the eve of the queen's funeral and this is how he behaves Vivian Berkovici is a former Canadian ambassador to Israel, uh, said, quote, he is the Canadian prime minister representing Canada at a week of mourning for the queen, our head of state. This isn't about Justin, but he should grow up. Speaking of Israel and Canada and singing, this isn't a funeral, which you may argue I'm now presenting this in bad faith. (laughs) It's just added context. If nothing else, a little bit of entertainment for you presented by your friends at Real Talk on this Tuesday. (laughs) Not a funeral. But when Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper welcomed Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu to Canada several years ago, this is how he did that.
so there you go. Harper has left the building. Stephen Harper has <laughs> left the building. Harper's got chops, man. If you go, on, I'm serious. If you go on YouTube and you search Stephen Harper singing, you'll there's like a hundred videos. And he's got a pretty decent catalog. Um, people say, well, that's not a funeral. Why the hell would you compare these two? I'm just saying, sometimes it's nice. In, you know, look what you know, happened. Uh, we're talking about the Prime Minister of Finland a short time ago and uh, how she was just absolutely raked across the coals for you know, being caught on video, caught on video, dancing with her friends, letting her hair down, so to speak. I think it's a good thing. You know, they're just like us, as the magazine headlines often read in Us magazine. They're just like us. Was it inappropriate for Justin Trudeau to be singing in a hotel bar with the Canadian delegation two nights before the Queen's funeral? I can understand how some people that would pounce on every single thing that their most loathed politician would do would hate this. I'm sure that there were people that when Stephen Harper sang for Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, it had nothing to do with Canada and Israel or Benjamin Netanyahu. It had everything to do with Stephen Harper. And they can't stand Stephen Harper, so they can't stand that he was singing. Making Canadians look foolish. The prime <laughs> minister with his jacket off. What's he doing? I'm telling you right now, if, if you don't look foolish and aren't belting out songs at my funeral, Ryan, I will be very disappointed. I was about to say I will party my face off at your funeral, but that sound that could be taken the wrong way. Yeah. Let me say what I hope people do at my funeral. I hope that my funeral people have an absolute blast. Yeah. I hope people that are sing, crying so hard dance. they start laughing, laughing so hard they start crying, mm -hmm. dancing, singing, swaying, hugging, being together. This is not Justin Trudeau at the funeral. No. Doing something disrespectful, <clears throat> representing Canada, disrepresenting or disrespecting the Queen. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just to me, it's much ado about nothing. And I respect some of the voices that are typically pretty critical of Justin Trudeau. Maybe the voice that is most critical, Brian Lilly, right? The Sun columnist, he tweets out the video yesterday. He says, I actually love a good piano bar. Haven't gone to one since before COVID. This reminds me I should check one out near me. He says, here's the PM at the Savoy in London last night. Wasn't the Savoy. It was the Corinthia, but I digress. He says, singing a little queen for the queen. He went, he went on to say that he, he doesn't have a problem with it. Emmett McFarlane, you've heard him on Real Talk before, political scientist out of the University of Waterloo. He said he's singing of all the embarrassing things Justin Trudeau has said and done, this doesn't rank. Emmett's not getting him off the hook. He just says for this, this is not an issue. And I love this one from Adam Feibel, who's a music journalist. He said, I don't think that Justin Trudeau singing Bohemian Rhapsody was disrespectful to the Queen, but I know enough about karaoke to assume it was disrespectful to Queen. <laughs> tell Which... you, at your funeral, I'm going to do uh, Every Rose Has Its Thorn. Oh. You're always humming that one. Is that yeah, like it's, it's a good tune. Like it's a good tune. The shower Every the rose morning? has its thorn. It's a good karaoke <laughs> tune. It's right in my range. Let's talk about international happiness at work. In just a second, uh, first of all, these conversations presented by our amazing sponsors like the team at Kubi Energy. They want to remind you, and I am going to hammer this home as best I can. Right now, there is $40,000 sitting on the table waiting for you to take advantage of the new Canada Greener Homes Grant. It's a $40,000 interest-free loan. You can pay it off over 10 years. Kubi has all the details. You talk to them, you get your free quote at kubienergy.ca. 
I guarantee, I mean, I can't guarantee, but like unless your house is 12,000 square feet, I guarantee you can get your solar installed for way less than 40 grand. I talked to somebody just the other day, hired Kubi to do it, a real talker, told me it was 17K all in, and he's got a nice pad. He's got a lot of roof to cover. Okay, you had a lot of electricity he wanted to generate. So that was a nice big system. Of course, every quote is different, but Kubi can do all the paperwork for you. Get you set up with that Canada Greener Homes grant. Why not get solar on your roof and start saving right now with Kubi Energy at kubienergy.ca. Our friends at Apex Automation want to give you a bit of a sense of, of what they do. You can check them out online at apexautomation.ca, putting out a call to all engineers that are maybe looking for a new career with a company that really values you. Their main expertise is called industrial control systems engineering and software development solutions. So this means they're working with, with, with people in mining. They're working with people in forestry. They're working with people in brewing. They work with a ton of craft brewers to help automate, control, and engineer everything that goes into these vital services. It's fascinating work. It's the type of work that gets you excited to show up every day at apexautomation.ca. Hey, listen, it's not quite last call yet for your opportunity to change your life with a $2.2 million dream home, but we're getting there. We're getting close. The Covenant Foundation Lottery, 30 years of life-changing wins in support of the Misericordia and Grey Nuns Hospitals. The grand prize, if you're watching us on YouTube, you're seeing it right now, the interior of this two-plus-million-dollar dream home. It comes fully furnished. Everything you're seeing in the video, you get to keep when you win the house. Plus, they're giving away cars and trips, cash through the 50-50. Get your tickets today at covenantfoundationlottery.ca. And before we get on to talking about happiness at work, you know, sometimes it's the tools of the trade that'll keep you the happiest. You need a new MacBook Pro or, or, or do you have phone envy? You're looking at those brand new iPhone 14s Pro Beyond. They are now available at Westworld Computers, your Apple experts. Plus, they're overstocked on their MacBooks. So now's a better time than ever before to get a deal, upgrade your home or your business tech. Daryl and his team love working with their customers to find the perfect solutions. Shop online at westworld.ca or go see them in person. You can find them in their West End Edmonton store. Well, as mentioned, it's International Week of Happiness at Work. Uh, David Bolton's a market director with Robert Half. That's the world's first and largest talent solutions firm. He's an expert on understanding what makes workers happy, what makes them unhappy. Plus, he keeps an eye on general trends across the country. David, welcome to Real Talk. It's your debut this morning. Thanks for making time for us. Good morning, Ron. It's, it's great to be here and to be called an expert before I've even had my coffee in the morning. It's, uh, it's quite the compliment. So thanks for having me. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm trying to stay on your good side, I guess. Uh, <laughs> hey, International Week of Happiness at Work. Let me get personal right out of the gates. What makes you happy at work? What are some of the factors that matter to you? Yeah, great question, Ryan. I, th I think for me, I've been very fortunate to be at Robert Half now for coming on 10 years. And similar to what our survey found, it's that interesting, meaningful work. I, I feel very privileged to know that every day I help people find new jobs. And, and that's quite quite a powerful, powerful career to be in. I, I'm fortunate to lead a team of professionals across BC who, who come into work every day, helping people look for new careers and, and helping companies look for employees to help take their company forward. And 
that's pretty rewarding as, as an intrinsic value, just knowing every day that you're you're helping people's careers uh, move forward. I'll let people know that, that you specialize. I mean, you do a whole bunch of stuff, but you specialize in, in tech and finance and accounting, marketing, creative practice groups. Uh, how have those evolved with regards to the perspective of the worker, the employees, the teams? Uh, what are people looking for when it comes to fulfillment or being challenged uh, that maybe wasn't a factor two or five or 10 years ago? Yeah, great question. So we, we recently had a survey that went across a, a number of Canadian professionals that was asking what makes you happy in your job? What brings you the most joy day to day? And interestingly, the, the highest response with 38% of the responders um, commenting that what made them happy was interesting and meaningful work. Um, so that's people that come to, come to work every single day. They enjoy what they do. They know it adds value. And that was what made them the, uh, the most happy. I think if we look at what has shifted over the last two to three years is my teammates only was the number one choice for 15% of people. And, and we believe that comes somewhat as a result of the pandemic, where maybe those inter-office collaboration moments aren't happening as much as they used to be. I think if you go back three, five years ago, it was your teammates that really made you come to work. And that's what was, was great about your job. Now, when those interactions are maybe more through different video calls, Teams, Zoom, whatever the case may be, that's not quite the same driver for people. And then we're also seeing people find this balance of, of work-life balance a bit better. And sometimes that means the socializing with people from work isn't happening as much as it used to because they're trying to find a way to disconnect maybe after a long day. So those are probably the two biggest shifts we've seen. It's that meaningful work. People have become more altruistic and they're keen to find a job that has, has value to them, and then probably a little bit less in terms of their teammates being what makes them happy on a day-to-day -day basis. I feel like as, as you're describing this, I'm thinking like names of personal friends of mine are popping into my head, and I'm I'm thinking of people that, that right now are, have realized that they can do Zoom calls with a, a collared shirt on top and basketball shorts on the bottom, or, or they can look after their kids and make their kids lunch between their two video conference calls, or they're not spending an hour and a half or three hours stuck in traffic commuting, they can stack up meetings back to back to back because they're all over Google Meet or Microsoft Teams or what have you. There are a lot of positives, but th there are some negatives too, right? Uh, all in, are you able to say whether this is a good or a bad trend or is it too subjective? It really depends on the individual, the yeah. company and what they do. So this, the second highest response in this survey was flexible work options as 34% of people said that's what makes them happy. And I think it's really important to remember that flexibility is different for different people. Some people, it just means missing the morning commute. If I don't have to be stuck on the Lionsgate Bridge at 7.30 in the morning, that makes my day better. For other people, it's window work. Or for others, it's that comment you made about just being able to make my kids lunch in between Zoom calls. So flexibility is a huge part of that. Some people want to come into the office. They like being able to separate a bit of their home life from their professional life and be able to come into the office, know you've got that Wi-Fi network that's not going to go down on you. Maybe you haven't got the kids running around distracting you. So it's different for different people. There's absolutely businesses that need people there to do their job. You know, there's certain professions that need to have people in office or in the, their place of work. There's other places that don't. And I think it's really important that as leaders, we, we have that conversation with our teams. We speak to people as individuals and find out what works for them and the business because it's very easy to go back to, well, this is what we always did when actually the world and everything has moved on so much in the last two, three years. It's interesting. I'm taking a look at the results of this Robert Half LinkedIn poll that you and your teammates conducted. 
you asked, as you've mentioned to our audience, what about your job brings you the most joy? And, and by a you know by a significant margin, thirty eight percent, the leading response, like you said, interesting, meaningful work. And that's understandable. Flexible work options, 34%. My teammates, 15%. And then receiving recognition, just 13% of people. Uh, am I being lazy and extrapolating from that? People don't care about being recognized as much as other factors. Is that a new development? Yeah. And again, that's a really interesting point because I think that recognition means different things to different people. Mm. Some people will see that and just think we're talking solely about base salary. Other people will think of it as the, the kudos they receive every day for doing a good job, the pat on the back, the accolade. So I suppose it depends a little bit on how you quantify recognition. Is it raises or is it praises? You know, both of them are recognition in different formats. But how do you kind of receive that as an individual? And uh, I think it's still on the list and it's on the list for a reason because it is important. But we, we've definitely seen a shift at the moment in terms of what people take away from what makes them happy at work. You're talking to people all the time that, that are looking to for, for better career options, people that are looking for, you know, better ways to feel fulfilled, people that are that are wanting to connect with a company where they feel like their career can can take off. And I'm sure that some people tell you that they do want the interesting, meaningful work. That's their top priority. And then other people probably look you in the eye, David, and say, I want to make as much money as I possibly can. And we're looking right now at inflation that's, you know, between where you're looking at, 5 and 8% year over year. It's, it's unsustainable as, as we see the Bank of Canada trying to slow that down and other external factors. But people are going to start expecting compensation to match those same rates of increase, right? I mean, unless you're collectively bargaining, if you're talking to your employer, some people are going to say, I need a 5 or 6% raise this year, or I haven't had a raise for three years. I need a 10% raise. And the employer is going to look them in the eye and say, I can't, you know, the, the Lay's potato chip commercial. If I give one to you, I've got to give one to everybody. They're not going to be able to pull it off. Can you give us some insight into this? Yeah, it's, it's a real challenge. And I think that and what a lot of companies that we're seeing right now are doing is, is getting away from just raises to recognize people and moving it into ad hoc bonuses. Is it extra vacation days? Is it shorter days before the weekend? It's different ways to recognize people because you're right. Inflation is a crazy, crazy numbers right now. And, and if you're a, a US company that has different inflationary rates, if you're Canada wide or provincial wide, it's going to be different as well. And then we just look at gas prices and the cost to park downtown and, and, and other factors that can impact your day. So the raise is, is, a, is an easy thing to fall back on and say, inflation is X, I want a pay rise of X. However, that hasn't been your argument two years ago when inflation was only at one or 2%. You wanted a raise that was greater than that. So you do have to look at it over a period of time. The big thing is though, is to have that conversation because often we can come to some sort of um, compromise that works with both the employee and the employer the last thing you want to do is be handing in your notice saying, I'm going to get paid X thousand dollars more if I go join another company when you've not had that conversation with your manager, because it could be, yeah, we can find a way to give you an increase. Or it could be, how does five extra vacation days sound to you? And that may be more valuable to people than actually a couple of extra thousand dollars. Yeah, no kidding. So with, with worker burnout and, and worker boredom, which are, are certainly two different things, I think, um, becoming bigger factors uh, with the insight here, with a more competitive or tighter job market. Uh, we've talked a lot about employees or workers or staff. Um, what about the flip side of the coin? What are the implications of all this for employers? Yeah, so another survey we did earlier in the year said that I think it was 39% of employees feel bored in the job. Hmm. And, and that's going to lead to a decrease in productivity, a decrease in morale. And it's important to identify that as soon as possible so you can work on it. So my point earlier about being in the office and remote, 
you used to get that feeling when somebody was disengaged. You'd see them go into the kitchen a couple more times through the day for a coffee or sitting away from the desk, texting on their phone. When people are working remote, you don't always get that. So it is harder to really track when is somebody disengaged if they're just dialing it in or quiet quitting is what is a, a common trend now to, to call it. The most important thing for employers is to have the conversation, is to make sure you're having regular conversations with your team. Are you setting up scheduled conversations, scheduled one-to-ones to talk to them about their job? What parts do they enjoy the most? What parts do they not enjoy? Is there parts of the stuff they don't enjoy? We can maybe reallocate elsewhere, we can automate, or we can break down to other people to help take on. Maybe somebody else enjoys that analytical, that, that dry component of their job. Someone else, that can be really stimulating and a good mental exercise. So it's important to have those conversations. We've used the term a stay interview or a job interview, not for people that we're looking to hire, but for people that are in the seat and actually talked about what do they do every day, what parts of their job do they enjoy, what would make them leave. And, and I think the biggest thing it comes down to is having that communication, because if you don't talk to your people, you'll never know what it is that makes them happy, what doesn't make them unha- doesn't make them happy. And um, it's very easy to get a 30 minute video call booked in the calendar and just assume everything's great. But actually, it's going that step beyond being deliberate. Maybe it's an in-person conversation and really finding out what you can do to improve that um, that person's perception of their job. David, before we let you go, you you mentioned quiet quitting. I'm glad you brought it up because I keep hearing people talk about it. I'm not sure I totally understand what my understanding is that it's like kind of like a work to rule type mindset where people just like if, if your job description is nine to five, uh, you make yourself available here. That is the extent to which you make yourself available. You don't go the extra mile for your employer. Is that basically what quiet quitting is? And, and, and what's your perception of how this is impacting the labor force or the employment landscape? Yeah, it's a great question, Rod. And I think it's pretty pretty tough to define what is quiet quitting because right. that's how it's it's kind of started. It's that just doing the bare minimum to survive, coming in at nine, checking out at five, and just doing my job. And, and for me, quiet quitting is a little bit more. It's it's maybe that that retail worker who's meant to go and approach customers and ask if they can help, just standing there and not going to approach customers. So it's right. maybe dialing back that little bit of interest that you might be putting into your job on a daily basis. It's not just doing the bare minimum, but it's kind of slowly retracting back from that um, to do the bare minimum. For me, I, I understand it. I can see why, you know, we talk about what's important to people's lives and it is their home life, their hobbies, their family, whatever the case may be. So not everybody's required to do above and beyond what their job is. But I find that if people enjoy their job, sometimes they want to just work that little bit harder through the nine to five to achieve more and take on more interesting tasks. So. It's a term that is banded around. I don't think it's necessarily got a clear definition. I think people can use it in a term in a way that suits them. Mm. But um, it's almost glamorizing and putting a, a cool hashtag onto onto a trend that yeah. for me, I'm not seeing in the workplace and most of my clients aren't seeing. But, you know, social media says it's out there. So <laughs> I have to take that on the chin. All right. Well, you're the expert, like we said. Uh, David, I really appreciate your insights on this. Uh, you, you've got our audience talking on the live chat, and I'm anticipating a few emails to the show as well. That's David Bolton, market director for Robert Half, the world's largest talent solutions firm. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, you bet. We appreciate the comments as well. Uh, you know, for example, Dwayne says automation is going to play a way bigger role in employment. No kidding, Dwayne, right? Like you hear from Apex on our show all the time. 
Um, but they're hiring, right? Automation doesn't necessarily mean everybody's getting fired. I asked Adam Berlinick about this. He's the founder of Apex. I don't know. He's, I think he's the president of Apex Automation. I said, what, so does, when, when you automate a potash mine or when you automate a brewery, do you still need the people? He goes, oh, yeah. He says, of course you need the people, uh, but it just takes workers. It takes human beings out of more dangerous or mundane situations, Right. Randy says, as a business owner, I could care less where our employees work as long as the work gets done when it's supposed to get done. Tracy makes a good point, says it's obviously also different for people who provide services versus those who provide a product without a customer service element. Tony's probably right, saying working for government, raises or cash bonuses just aren't happening. A cost of living increase really would help. Others are talking about their their work from home scenarios and what their employers have done to keep them happy. Tracy says, as a career coach or a mentor, nice, Tracy, glad you're watching. Tracy says, I tell adults of all ages that you can find meaning in both paid and unpaid work, but most of us need to have something that we care a little bit about. Maybe that's what drives some people's volunteer or community service if if they're at a job that maybe doesn't get them thinking all the time or provide that fulfillment. Let us know how this lands with you. It's International Week of Happiness at Work. Interesting talking points there. Uh, Travis Taves in just a moment. He wants to be Alberta's next premier. He's already been the finance minister. Wound up looking pretty good with that surplus budget. We're going to ask him about the finances of Alberta, Alberta's future in Canada. And of course, whatever you're punching into our live chat, we'll put in as many questions as we can. Hey, this is perfect timing for me to remind you. I just talked to Mike at Eden Landscaping just the other day. You can check them out online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Of course, we check in with our sponsors. We value them so much. I said, Mike, you know, the summer season's wrapping up. Landscape construction is wrapping up. What do you want me to remind people? He says, well, there were a couple of jobs they had this summer where they could have used more hands. He says, we're looking to hire. He says, you can let real talkers know if they're looking for work, if they're the types that like to go out there and get some exercise while they're working, you like to be outside. If a career in landscaping would really float your boat you can contact mike today at landscapeedmonton.ca expect another hiring blitz in the spring as they get ready to bring outdoor spaces to life you can check out what they do at landscapeedmonton.ca at sherwood and st albert dodge you will find alberta's best selection of ram trucks period they can find you exactly what you're looking for whether it's the classic the limited My next-door neighbor, I was telling you about the Ram Red Edition. It's absolutely beautiful, all blacked out with red accents. Looks stunning. And, of course, I've been telling you about that Longhorn that I've been driving. Perfect trim. Beautiful stuff. Ram is the back-to-back-to-back Motor Trend Truck of the Year for good reason. You can find Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge online. Just look at the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. And if this Thanksgiving you're looking to save yourself a little bit of work so you can make yourself more available to your family, you want to participate in the conversations, the laughter, the gathering again, finally, why not trust Friesen Brothers with the Thanksgiving dinner box? It saves you all the work. You still get all the praise, right? The Thanksgiving dinner box now available to order. You can go to Friesen.com or, of course, you can check in with any of the 16 locations across the province. It's easy to reheat while the table's being set. It can feed up to four people, but, you know, you can buy 10 of them if you need 40 people. Roasted turkey, baked potatoes, sour cream chives, bacon bits, roasted root vegetables, gravy, cranberry sauce, their famous sourdough dinner buns. 
then you could top it off by adding on granny's stuffing. I highly recommend it. An old world French baguette, maybe a ham and bacon cheese ball, and a four pack of Bald Mike's beer. If you're in the Edmonton or Fort Saskatchewan store, again, the Thanksgiving dinner box available now at Friesen.com. Travis Taves wants to be Alberta's next premier. In 2019, he was elected as the MLA for Grand Prairie Wapiti. He was named to the Ministry of Finance, the president of the Treasury Board by Premier Jason Kenney, whom he wants to succeed. He's been running a, a strong campaign in the United Conservative Party's leadership race, and he joins us now live as part of our ongoing conversations with the leadership contenders. Mr. Tapes, thanks so much for making yourself available. A good morning to you. Good morning, Ryan. It's good to be here. I want to ask you, when I introduce you, you know, we mentioned you're a proud representative of the riding of Grand Prairie Wapiti. You had a, a chance a few weeks ago to talk to Grand Prairie's mayor, Jackie Clayton, about that dust up. You know what happened in Grand Prairie City Hall where the uh, federal finance minister was uh, accosted by a protester. And I asked Mayor Clayton, what does something like this do to your region's reputation? How do you manage a situation like this? People can check out our interview with Mayor Clayton if they want to hear what she had to say. How about you? How did that land with you? That that That's your backyard. Ryan, it was, I mean, it was embarrassing. Um, look, uh, Christia Freeland and I would um, disagree on a lot of things politically, certainly policy-wise, but it was embarrassing to see the uh, way she was treated in Grand Prairie. And um, look, the vast majority of uh, folks in, in the Northwest here in the Grand Prairie region are respectful, are cordial, are great people. And uh, again, this is an aberration. There's no place for this kind of uh, activity. There's no place for this kind of abusive uh, action in politics or in civil discourse. Uh, but again, the vast majority of people in, in the Northwest here, I think, uh, were appalled at, again, that kind of behavior. It's been an interesting leadership race to watch uh, just a short time ago. And I commented it here on the show, the, the perceived front runner. And I'll leave it wide open for your comment on this, your analysis on this. The perceived front runner, Danielle Smith, just a short time ago, uh, mentioned you by name as Jason Kenney's handpicked candidate. Now, that could either work in your favor or that could work against you. What's your response to her uh, framing you as that? Well, you know, I'm not surprised that she's um, looking to take a run at me. I, it's really a two-horse race, Danielle and myself. And um, look, uh, here, here's the reality. I'm a very different individual than Jason Kenney. I have very different uh, very different background. I was in the private sector uh, right until 2019. Uh, and, you know, while I'm comfortable in downtown Edmonton and Calgary, certainly in an urban corporate setting, my roots are planted deep in rural Alberta. We have, we're very different individuals. And I will bring a very different leadership style, tone and approach uh, to, to this province. I believe a leadership approach that's really necessary right now. I believe a, a leadership style that can unite this conservative movement and Albertans broadly. And so again, not surprised that Danielle's taking a run at me, um, but uh, right now I believe we need strong principled and proven leadership. Ryan, I always say this, if you wanna know how a leader will lead, look at how they've led. Mm. I would invite Albertans to compare our track records. The leadership race, I think, unfortunately, has has turned into this debate on uh, Alberta's role within Canada, Alberta's relationship with Ottawa. I mean, a lot of this has been prompted by talk about a proposed 
Alberta Sovereignty Act. Uh, what's your clearly stated position on Alberta's role in Canada? And how do you perceive Alberta's relationship with the federal government right now? What would it look like under your leadership? Well, Ryan, I'm a lifelong Albertan. I've certainly seen Alberta's vital economic interests uh, attack time after time over the years. I was a teenager when Prime Minister Trudeau brought in the, the National Energy Program. I've considered every option for sure. Uh, I want to ensure that uh, Alberta has the strongest position possible uh, within the nation of Canada. But look, I will not take what I believe to be a tired, failed approach of a lot of political bluster and rhetoric over promising and under delivering. That's what the Sovereignty Act is. In fact, if the Sovereignty Act is implemented as its originators envisioned, it will create uh, economic chaos in Alberta, will unwind all the economic gains, fiscal gains we've made in the last three years and send billions of dollars investment out of the province. I will take a, an assertive but strategic and pragmatic approach on every issue that affects Alberta within Confederation. We all know that we need fundamental reform to our federal fiscal transfer programs. We've made some progress on fiscal stabilization in the last few years. We need to make you know, significantly more progress there and equalization needs complete transformation. I believe we can make progress there. I'm a believer in an Alberta pension plan. An Alberta pension plan would be Alberta's Biggest lever to right the fiscal imbalance that we see across the country, certainly affecting Alberta. I want to uh, see uh, Ottawa's uh, tax power eroded through the use of tax points. That's a long-term game. I'm not going to overpromise on that one. But over time, I believe that we can take more of that tax room in the provinces, uh, in the provinces' purview, rely less on federal transfers, and again, better direct, self-direct our own affairs. Again, I believe we need to take an assertive but strategic and pragmatic approach over promising and under delivering all of this political bluster. It hasn't got us anything over the years. People have been critical of uh, AIMCO's performance. Uh, gosh, I'm going to be honest with you. We call the show Real Talk. I had a real talk for a second. One of my golfing buddies, he's a good friend of mine, works at AIMCO. And, and, and quite frankly, Mr. Taves, he's really pissed off about some of the reporting around AIMCO. He believes that they've been unfairly criticized. He says that they've had some of their best years, but some of the higher profile or more reported stories have planted seeds of doubt with people regarding AIMCO's performances. And of course, this has been woven into discussions around an Alberta pension plan. We've heard very loudly from teachers representatives that that's not something that they want. They're using words like stolen when they talk about their pension funds going toward a provincial approach as opposed to a national one. What gives you the conviction or what gives you the sense that it's the right move and it's what Albertans want? I mean, we're talking about their pensions. It doesn't get much more personal than that. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. I Look, I know how sensitive pensions are uh, with Albertans, and, and rightly so. Firstly, firstly, with the teacher's pension. Look, we moved the investment function to AIMCO, uh, just simply the investment, uh, investment function. AIMCO has delivered uh, very strong results here over the last couple of years. Uh, again, they, they ran into a bit of a rough, rough patch in early 2020. Uh, there was a strategy that was a really fa a failed strategy. Since then, we've replaced the vast majority of the board. There's a new CEO hired. They've uh, taken uh, a much more um, you know, principled approach to uh, risk management, made a number of changes uh, to internal risk management policy, and again, have delivered very strong results. 
Look, with, when it comes to the Alberta Pension Plan, I've seen the numbers, Ryan. I know for a fact that an Alberta Pension Plan would leave Alberta with the strongest pension plan of any jurisdiction in North America. Uh, it would really position Alberta for competitiveness in the future. It would result in better benefits, stronger benefits, or perhaps even a refund on premiums for our seniors today. It would be very, very significant. And look, I, I would work with Albertans to demonstrate the value proposition of an Alberta pension plan. I believe the numbers would be compelling. You were one of those that was photographed through a telephoto lens on the so-called Sky Palace balcony through the course of COVID. And obviously it earned the premier uh, great criticism from including members of his legislative assembly, right? Your fellow MLAs. How damaging was that to the conservative brand? And, and what did it do to the internal party politics? Can you shine some light on that? Well, Ryan, we never stopped working through COVID. We, we were continuing with the people's business right through that time. That was really a working dinner. Uh, in fact, I drove from Grand Prairie that day uh, to, to attend a meeting. And we found out we were going to have a meeting over, over a dinner. And uh, we believed we were following the rules. We were outside. We were spread out. We believed far enough apart to accommodate all of the public health measures at the time. And we, we, we knew we were in full view of, uh, of an apartment building right overhead. We weren't slinking around at all. It was a business meeting. And, uh, you know, when the picture came out, and in fact, the very next day, uh, we asked our staff to measure uh, our seats, our placement of our seats. And uh, it turned out uh, I was about four inches too close to the Premier's Chief of Staff. And, uh, and, and look, I also recognize it was just a bad look at the time. Yeah. I rose in the legislature the next day, Ryan, and I apologize to Albertans. Again, we didn't follow the public health measures by the letter of the law. We were a few inches too close at that dinner. And I think optically, it was, it was just a tough look. And, you know, um, I, I, rose, I rose in the legislature and, and apologized. Uh, that, uh, that, I believe, is what politicians and leaders have to do when they make an error. It was... And and uh, I'm curious for your insights on this. When when you look at at what drove a stake into the party, and and I don't know if that's irreparable damage or not, but I think of that letter. I think it was 17 MLAs signed it. I remember Angela Pitt signed it out of Airdrie. She was one of them, and it, and it was about COVID measures, right? It was they were they were uh, implying that they believed that the premier, uh, on the advice of Dr. Dina Hinshaw, that the health minister at the time were 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 imposing unfair. Uh, restrictions. They didn't believe that it was being managed properly. Now, obviously, there are other factors that can create division within a united conservative party. I mean, history shows that. What would be your plan as leader or as premier to keep this party together, most especially heading into election season next year? Ryan, great question. Unity within our conservative movement, I believe, is the most critical issue that we're facing. And I've, I've given this a lot of thought. Uh, look, as I've traveled around the province this summer, and I've been around a number of times, met with so many great Albertans, I, I believe that unity is, is very, very attainable. But it will take leadership to unite this party and movement. Number one, I talk to far too many Albertans who feel they've not had a voice these last couple of years. Maybe they've felt that their MLA hasn't had a voice around the table, around the caucus table. You know, I talk about a different leadership style and approach, and my leadership style has been informed 
from previous leadership responsibilities I've had, whether it's been leading our own business teams and our businesses, certainly during my time as president of Treasury Board, uh, leading a Treasury Board through some very challenging fiscal decisions, decisions that would affect Albertans. But Ryan, I especially draw on my experience when I was president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, uh, following our discovery of BSE, and those were years of real loss, emotion, and division in the industry, not dissimilar to what we see today broadly in Alberta. I found that it was critically important that everybody around the table had a voice that was fundamental to unity. And Ryan, it was also fundamental to ultimately arriving at the best decisions. I commit to leading in that manner. I commit to ensuring that every MLA has an ability to bring the views of their constituents to that caucus table, advocate those views, pound the table for those views. It's their fiduciary duty to bring the views of their constituents forward. Not only will divergent views be tolerated, they'll be welcomed mm. because that's the place for them. Again, if MLAs believe they've not been heard or had a chance to really bring their views to the table, aberrant behavior occurs. And I think to some degree, that's what's happened. It's fundamental that MLAs have a chance to bring the views of their constituents forward. I'll ensure that happens. It's it's a nice position to be in as finance minister when you've got a surplus budget, right? And I know that that even through tough economic times, you were looking at a surplus of about $550 million and people went, hey, I mean, it's in the black, right? And then all of a sudden, some things happen, most especially with resource revenues, and all of a sudden you're looking at $13 billion, which is roughly representative of about 25% of the entire budget. Uh, you've got a significant surplus and now Albertans want to know, well, what do you plan to do with it? We've heard the plan from from the present finance minister, the one who replaced you, of course, you resigned to seek the leadership. Um, they're talking about topping up the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. They're talking about paying down some of Alberta's shorter term debt. Uh, it's been described by some people, including me, as a prudent solution. But even when I uttered that phrase, I heard from people, uh, anti-poverty advocates, people that are concerned about a, a doubling, a reported doubling in the rate of uh, the unhoused population in Alberta's major cities and other communities. People are talking about AISH and how it's been de-indexed, talking about strains on the healthcare and the education system. We need more nurses. We need more teachers and TAs and EAs. You know what's up with all that. So how would you approach those strains on the, on the so-called social supports for Alberta as premier, as leader of this party? Yeah, no, that's good. I Look, I when I was finance minister, I was clear in terms of uh, how we needed to continue to manage uh, with real fiscal discipline going forward. Uh, I, again, any earnings uh, or pardon me, surplus up to the earnings of the Heritage Savings Trust Fund would categorically be reinvested in the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. That will ensure that that fund can continue to grow and it, it will grow materially if we follow that policy. Surplus in excess of that needs to be set aside so that we can pay down debt as it matures, you know, most of our debt, and we have a lot of it accumulated over the last 12 years, uh, most of our debt is placed at a low cost of capital. But if we have to go into capital markets and borrow uh, to pay that debt off as it matures, we could be doing it at twice the cost of capital, twice the interest rate. And that would be brutal on our income statement. Fiscal discipline will continue to matter. And Ryan, to ensure that we can continue to deliver world-class programs in healthcare and education, to ensure that we can continue to support our most vulnerable, fiscal discipline is critically important. Running surplus budgets, uh, staying out of deficit is critical. Now, I was clear as Minister of Finance, when we paused 
indexing in our personal tax system. When we paused indexing on some of our programming that I was clear, when we got to a fiscal balance, fiscal responsibility, I would re-index. And I've already announced that I will do that. Of course, we'll re-index our, our personal tax system a retroactive January 1 for this year. So when, you're, when Albertans are filing their tax return for 2022, effectively there, there will be re-indexed amounts. And uh, in terms of all, any of the programs, including H, that were paused, I will re-index those effective January 1st uh, of 2023. And by re-indexing them at that date, the way the um, timing works for indexing, uh, we'll ensure that we capture this uh, inflationary period so that our most vulnerable are not left behind. Look, the other thing, Ryan, I should mention, Alberta has by, we, we support our most vulnerable, whether it's our severely handicapped or our seniors, we support them at much higher levels than other provinces. We've maintained that higher level of support. Alberta will continue to have the highest level of support for our seniors and for our most vulnerable. That's important to Albertans. That's important to me. Let me ask you in closing about some of the most marginalized, uh, certainly in the province of Alberta. I don't have to tell you that Alberta and B.C., for some reason, seem to be the hardest hit by this opioid crisis. Uh, but thousands of Canadians, thousands of human beings are dying every year from drug poisoning. Uh, the Kenny government, uh, of which you were senior cabinet minister, has, has been heavily criticized by experts in harm reduction for its approach to, to shutting down or defunding supervised consumption services. How would you manage, fund, oversee, perceive, and address the opioid crisis in Alberta? Ryan, I, you know, I won't dispute there. There's certainly a place for harm reduction policy, and I recognize um, it, the, the benefit of, of that type of policy. But my focus would be to continue on, on the track that we've started, and that's to really focus on creating treatment spaces to assess those, uh, to assist those Albertans that are caught in the cycle of addiction, to assist them out of that cycle. We, we cannot leave Albertans uh, in, in that incredibly despairing cycle. We have to offer them a way out. We committed as a government to create 4,000 treatment spaces. We've done that. Now the goal is 8,000 treatment spaces. We're building additional treatment facilities right across the province. I believe that is the right approach to assist Albertans out of, out of that cycle of addiction. Look, it's been a tough couple of years. It's been a tough couple of years uh, in terms of loss. So many Albertans have struggled during this time. And in some cases that's been manifested in, in, in you know, increasing addictions challenges. We need to provide hope for those Albertans by offering, offering them a hand out of the cycle of addictions. That would be my approach. But, but let me just ask you as a follow-up question, you know, experts in harm reduction point to the fact that no one in recorded history in Canada has ever died uh, utilizing a supervised consumption service. I mean, they, they, they reverse drug poisonings on a daily basis. I mean, they're literally saving lives and the, the withdrawal of these funds has been heavily criticized and, and, and not just by partisans, uh, by people across the country. I mean, I think of Dr. Ben Perrin. We spoke with him, a former Harper advisor out of Vancouver just a short time ago. I mean, he wrote the book on this in Canada. Experts are saying that it is it is a desperately needed approach, these supervised consumption services. Is there is there an ideological hurdle in the way? Is 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 it not politically palatable? What is it that, that would stop someone from like yourself from from heeding the evidence of these experts that are on the ground every single day? Ryan, again, I'll reiterate, I, I, I know there's some value and merit in harm reduction policy. 
And some of those programs are continuing uh, in, you know, in our, in our regions and our communities. But my focus would not be on simply continuing to supply drugs to those caught in the cycle of addictions. My approach would be to offer them a hand up out of that cycle of addictions, out of that life that is so despairing and hopeless. Ryan, I believe that is ultimately the right priority so that we can bring Albertans out of that cycle and offer them help and assistance and, and the opportunity to reclaim their lives. Travis Taves wants to be Alberta's next premier. Uh, thanks so much for making yourself available here on Real Talk. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You bet. If this is your first time catching the show, if you tuned in to hear uh, Mr. Taves, we endeavor to have meaningful conversations on issues that matter to people across the prairies and to people across this country. And we welcome your feedback to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You can also use our hashtag, RealTalkRJ. We thanks to everybody that, that subscribes to our podcast, that subscribes to our YouTube channel, and of course, that shares this content with somebody that you think may want to hear what Travis Taves just had to say. We've also spoken with Danielle Smith. We've spoken with Leela here. We've spoken with Rebecca Schultz. We've spoken with Rajin Sani. We're still waiting to hear back from the others. You can let us know your thoughts on this race, whether or not you intend to vote on this, whether or not you already have. Of course, we'll know by the first week of October who Alberta's next premier will be. That conversation presented in part by our friends at Park Power. We talk about cost of living. They understand that people right now, every single month with household expenses, are, are oftentimes trying to find a way to make it work because these costs have increased more than they ever anticipated. Park Power is here for you with a number of different options. It's simple. Step number one, go to parkpower.ca. Compare rates on electricity, natural gas, and internet. What are you paying right now? What would you be paying with them? Variable rate, fixed rate, your choice, right? Number two, when you bring your business over, make sure you use the promo code 2022-REALTALK. It saves you $70 off your first electricity bill. 70 bucks just knocked off with that promo code. And of course, don't forget as well that Park Power gives 10% of its proceeds back to nonprofits in their communities where they live and work. How great is that? You get to choose which charity you want to support with your business when you go to parkpower.ca. Our friends at Local Environmental Services are operating in Alberta and Saskatchewan, have been doing so for more than 25 years, still family-owned. Some people say it's only garbage, but not to them. They believe communities deserve better, better service, better prices, more support for local causes. You can view their services by checking out their website, localenvironmental.ca. That's also where you can request a quote. And don't forget, local, presenting Trash Talk every Friday here on the show. You can send your rant, send your gripes, vent a little bit by way of an email to us, and we'll get into those on Friday morning. It's a good way to wrap up the week every week, I feel. You know, we blow off a little steam, Johnny. I appreciate the comments that many of you have left here in our live chat about the politics here, uh, whether or not this united conservative party can stay united. And of course, everyone's got different priorities. Some of you were keen uh, to hear, or your ears perked up, let me say, when he, Mr. Tave started talking about re-indexing age or re-indexing uh, income tax, right? A lot of others have lived experience. I mean, whether or not Alberta does have some of the highest supports for seniors or the severely handicapped, Aish is assured income for the severely handicapped, uh, you'll still point out, quite rightfully so, that it's still very difficult to get by. 
I mean, we get messages from people, either people that are ACE recipients or people that are advocating on their behalf that are saying, you know, a cost of living increase of $20 a month or $30 a month is devastating to people. For other people that have, have more privilege, more stability, a higher income, 20 bucks isn't a big deal. And so we can uh, navigate that choppy water and, and it's kind of lost on us, the impact of an increased cost of living. I mean, let alone three or 400 more dollars a month, right? Whether it's groceries, the cost increasing there, whether it's fuel for your vehicle, if you have a vehicle, then that's not to be taken for granted. There's a lot of things to consider. And then, of course, John, there were the comments as well on whether or not people were super pissed off about the prime minister singing Queen two nights ahead of the Queen's funeral at a hotel bar in London. And it's an unscientific anecdotal observation, but I think it's safe to say that the Real Talk audience isn't too perturbed by I it. I see it. And meh. I mean, he was a little out of key, Ryan, if I have to say so. But yeah, a <laughs> little out of key. Harper was a little out of key. If I was singing in front of everybody, I also would be a little out of key. So we'll cut him some slack on that. I think it's been blown out of proportion. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And this is not me being a Trudeau apologist. This is me having reasonable expectations of of world leaders. Uh, if it was a, a Republican president, if it was a conservative prime minister, what have you, my response to this would be the same. I think it's it's you know we can we can take these moments these snippets it's it's why you'll probably notice on real talk when we bring you a a clip we say of a of a politician or a business leader or somebody speaking it's very rare that we'll play you a 4 or 5 second snippet right it's what a lot of the news outlets do but it's easy to present somebody out of context right we like to bring you 25 or 30 or 45 or 60 seconds of what somebody had to say so that the context is there and I feel like this video uh, of, of the prime minister, it, well, it was mm-hmm. like kind of a gotcha type video, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where you've got somebody for 10 seconds. Uh, we don't know if Justin Trudeau was crying in his hotel room for three hours ahead of that. We don't know what he did, what mm-hmm. his statement was, what he said to King Charles III or to the royal family when he met with them in person. We don't know, right? Sometimes people deal with grief or sadness in different ways, including exercise or singing or painting or quiet walks in the park, what have you. And who are we to say what somebody else is doing is wrong? I recognize that he's the prime minister of Canada. I recognize he's representing the nation. Maybe you would have picked a different song. Bohemian Rhapsody is a tough one to sing. (laughs) I think I think Kenny's dance moves were worse. Remember those? Oh, with John Tory. (laughs) Yeah, that was a. I think when you said that, everybody knows what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, the dancing at the street festival several years ago. Although I'm not sure I want to start poking fun at that because if people have video of me dancing, I'm not exactly Fred Astaire myself. (laughs) So I think I'm just going to stay in my lane on that one. Every Tuesday, we celebrate inventions or people or groups, organizations that are making a real impact in their community. It's the Leading Edge, presented by Leading Edge Physiotherapy, and this is super cool. We want to highlight some of the research that's happening in our own backyard at the University of Alberta, the Telerobotic and Biorobotic Systems Group at the U of A is on the leading edge by combining AI, artificial intelligence, with exoskeleton technology for those with mobility issues. Now, this is not just limited to people with spinal cord injuries, to be clear. I mean, this is advancement that will impact in theory thousands and thousands and thousands of people from all different areas and circumstances their personal lives 
The director of this group is Matty Tavacoli, an engineer, a computer engineering professor and electrical engineering professor as well, leading a group of students and researchers. How cool to be a student working on something like this. It's going to change people's lives. Their research hopes to build on the technology that already exists for current exoskeleton machines by personalizing the software to set individual walking patterns and to ease transitions with different positions and speeds according to who's using it, right? Your age, your gait, your height, your reality is going to be different than somebody else's. An exoskeleton, of course, a device that acts as a limb or an extension of the body to help people move and balance so they can participate in activities that may have previously been impossible. An undergraduate researcher by the name of Eddie Guo says we want the exoskeleton to learn from the person so that all the energy that the person imparts on the exoskeleton will be recorded and update the algorithm in real time. How cool is that? This technology has even been utilized by one of the survivors of the Humboldt Broncos bus crash who's able to hit golf balls again now. How's that for remarkable? The work at the Telerobotic and Biorobotic Systems Group at the University of Alberta is bringing opportunity back to people that otherwise would not have these experiences. And that's why this is in this week's edition of The Leading Edge, presented by our friends at Leading Edge Physiotherapy. Life shouldn't hurt. I love seeing comments for The Leading Edge every single Tuesday when we bring you this, and we get excited about it when we know we get to feature something that's really transformational. But to see people, you know, Brenda says, this is too cool. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bradley Martin, this is just amazing. Dwayne says it's like a miracle. Mm -hmm. We want to talk, I mean, we let off our show today talking to somebody about happiness at work and career fulfillment. Sure. Can you imagine the fulfillment that you would glean as an individual that was working on machine learning and AI and electrical engineering that was going to give someone that had sustained a spinal cord injury or maybe somebody that was born with mobility issues Mm -hmm. that's never been able to experience life outside of, for example, a wheelchair to give them a whole new opportunity. Can you imagine the fulfillment that would come with? I know. I'm just sitting over here pushing buttons. But even yesterday on Positive Reflections, uh, that woman's uh, amazing just idea she had from the smell she had a superpower yeah has a medical superpower if you missed it positive reflections yesterday presented by kubi energy up on youtube yeah up on youtube you can check it out this gal i think her name was joy uh out of the uk joy milne if i remember correctly she smelled alzheimer's on her husband she didn't know it took him about a decade to figure it out Mm -hmm. she she said that she was originally attracted to his manly musk she said, but the musk changed started over to time. change over time. She sounds like someone who already had like a heightened sense of, of smell. Right? Yeah. Because then when she went to the meetings with other people with Alzheimer's, she could. She said when she walked in the room. Overpowering, right? Yeah. She, she, she recognized that same smell. And uh, yeah, her husband, a doctor, uh, the one who's living with Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. uh, diagnosed in his 40s, by the way. And she was a retired nurse. And so I think that they probably also had some heightened uh, awareness of some of the things to look out for. And she put two and two together, the increased smell and, and some of his behavioral changes and uh, just amazing stuff. These are the stories we love on Real Talk. We don't want this to be a show. It will not be a show that's always politics or that's always natural disasters. I mean, yes, we're working on coverage and we're paying attention 
to what's happening in Puerto Rico right now, as an example, and the Dominican Republic and Turks and Caicos. I mean, just leveled by hurricane, right? We're paying attention to what's happening in Pakistan. We know that there's, I mean, Ukraine, geez, there's stuff happening all around the world. The province of Saskatchewan, James Smith Cree Nation. I mean, we need to talk about this stuff, but we also want your buckets to be filled. We want you to be encouraged and challenged. Mm -hmm. We're excited about tomorrow's show. We're going to be working on that through the day today. You can always, of course, fuel our uh, editorial exercise and have a say on who appears on this show by getting in touch with us to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Also wanted to let you know that coming up a little bit later on in the week, Ann Castleman, uh, a science journalist, is going to be anchoring our Real Talk Roundtable on Friday. Anne's got a great new piece out in The Walrus examining how the UK is winning the race against climate change. What's Britain doing right that we could do as well? Anne's done a deep dive. You can read her piece ahead of time. You'll find the link by following us on Twitter at RealTalkRJ. We're on Instagram and TikTok as well. We'll see you tomorrow. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com. 